0: CNN. CNN. CNN.
1: CNN. Radio. This is CNN Radio Profiles, where we get to know people who have the experience or ideas to change the way we see the world. My name is Michael Schulder, and the woman you're about to hear from has changed the perspective of some of the leading brain researchers of our time. Her name is Barbara Arrowsmith. She is the woman who changed her brain. That's the name of her new book. And to say that she changed her brain is no exaggeration, because when Barbara Arrowsmith was growing up in the 1950s and 60s, she had such a range of unusual, severe learning disabilities, there was no treatment for her. Hers was a struggle between despair and determination. Determination won. We welcome Barbara Arrowsmith. Thank you. I couldn't help but just be blown away by what you went through as a child and into your, your adulthood. How did you get to where you are now?
0: Well, it was a hunt for a number of years. I mean, I was born with very, very debilitating learning disabilities, and it really meant that Um, I couldn't function effectively in the world. I I couldn't understand language. I was getting lost all the time. I had a spatial deficit. Um, The whole left side of my body, I didn't know where it was in space. So I was very clumsy, constantly falling down, hurting myself. So I couldn't excel academically. I couldn't excel athletically and even socially because I didn't understand language. I couldn't follow what people were saying in conversations. So really a lot of years of Um, feeling like a misfit that that I, I didn't get it, I didn't fit into the world. And I did have some real strengths. I had a verbatim auditory memory so I could memorize things that I heard. And I had a photographic visual memory. So I really got by on memory and also on tremendous drive.
1: So you talked about you couldn't follow conversations. Tell me what you mean by that.
0: Well, I would be sitting in a situation, either a social situation where people were discussing ideas, and if it got any more complex than um, something that I could understand concretely. So if they said, you know, the person is wearing a red dress or it's you know cloudy outside, that I could understand because I could call up a visual image. And even in my notebooks, I used to draw pictures to try to interpret what I was reading. I would try to bring it down to kind of a concrete visual image. but. Most language or conversations go well beyond being able to bring them down to the concrete. So if it was even something as simple as, um, you know, I want you to put the book under the desk, that would give me pause. I would have to stop and think, okay, what does that mean? That's a relationship. Like, where is that desk and where is that book in relationship to the desk?
1: Were you able to read?
0: Yes. I mean, I struggled in grade one learning how to read, but my mother gave me um, lots of flashcards, and eventually I did learn how to read. But the conceptual understanding of what I read was the problem. So I could could read the words, Um, but it was almost like reading a foreign language. I mean, I would have to stop and think, what does this mean?
1: So if you were reading a typical passage, how many times would you have to read it to get it?
0: Oh, sometimes 20, 30, 40, and even often after 20, 30, 40 times, I still wasn't certain. I would create a hypothesis. I would say, I think that's what this means, but I could never verify meaning. So walking around, I used to talk about living in a fog, and that was my, my life, because nothing, nothing was solid in my world. Like, I could never grasp onto something and say, I really understand this. It was always, I think, kind of, maybe, sort of, but I could never be certain.
1: So how did you po- how could you possibly make it through high school with that disability with that range of disabilities?
0: Again, using my phenomenal memory, so I created a sort of a ritual. Um, when I studied, I'd lay all my notebooks out. I would kneel down at my bed and I put them all in my bed, almost like I was praying. I would cry and cry and cry. So there was no emotion left because I knew that what I was setting out to do was pretty much impossible, but I had to do it. And then I would read the first sentence in my book, close my eyes, visualize it um, until I could see it. Then I would read the second sentence. I would match it up to the first. By the end, when I got to the last page of my notebook, I could close my eyes and see my whole notebook from page one to page 75, however many pages, But then the challenge was, so now I had it all memorized, I didn't understand it, then when I went to write the exam, I would have to pray that first I could understand the question that was being asked of me, because sometimes I couldn't, and then that I made the right match, you know, that I understood the question and understood what would fit with that question. So sometimes I could get 90% on an exam. And sometimes 10%. And of course, the teachers would always interpret if I'd gotten 90% one time, that if I got 10% the next time, I must not be trying hard enough. And I was trying as hard as I possibly could.
1: And to add to that and that range of issues, you also had spatial issues. Describe that to us.
0: Yes. Yes. I, I also had a problem where I didn't know where the left side of my body was in space. My whole left side of my body was non-functional. If I tried to pick up a glass or a cup with my left hand, either I would end up wearing the contents because I would misjudge you know, how close my hand was to my body and I would dump the liquid on me, or sometimes I would drop it because I wouldn't have a sense of how much pressure to use. Um, and I couldn't judge if I was walking through a doorway where my body was relative to the door, so I would you know, bang off the door frame. The whole left side of my body was uh, tended to be quite bruised, and I would never have any idea of where I got those bruises. Uh, have lots of scars on that side of my body as a result of of, um, of accidents, and I didn't know where pain was coming from. So if I put my left hand on a burner, a hot burner, I could sense the pain, but I had no idea, unless I was actually looking at my hand, that that was the source of the pain. So I remember my mother telling me that she thought I wasn't going to live past age four because I was so accident-prone. And it was really it was part of my brain that wasn't sending the signals to the left side of my body to tell it, you know, where it needed to move in space.
1: This is CNN Profiles. We're speaking with the author of The Woman Who Changed Her Brain, Barbara Arrowsmith. Barbara did survive childhood. She got through high school, and because of that amazing memory of hers, she even got
0: into college. I was accepted to the University of Guelph. It's a you know small town outside of Toronto, um, originally going into studying nutrition because my mother was a nutritionist, so I wanted to do that. But it really hadn't dawned on me that nutrition was a lot of science, and so I did miserably in my first year because science, you can memorize only so much, but at that point, you have to really understand uh, the concepts. So after the first semester, I dropped out and went into child studies where I could rely more on some of my strengths of being able to observe children, sort of nonverbal reading of children.
1: So it's sort of remarkable to think. So at this point, I don't know, a lot of kids may have given up. And as a parent, I often think, what is it that that helps a child get self esteem mm-hmm. did you have high self esteem at that point or very low self
0: esteem oh i had no self esteem i I've, i my view of myself was i was stupid like that was the the language i used to describe myself that i was stupid and also a belief that You know, if if anybody looked at me very closely, they they would see that. Like I I would um, smile a lot and hope people wouldn't ask me questions because I wouldn't understand what they were asking. And really, I lived a world of terror.
1: That world of terror Barbara Arrowsmith describes began to change one day when she came across a case study from the 1940s of a Russian soldier with a head wound who presented with the very same symptoms she had, including an inability to tell time, to read a clock. Then she stumbled upon another study about the brains of rats. Barbara, the girl whose mother feared would not live past the age of five, was now 26. Tell us... How you figured out how to do what you describe as changing your own brain?
0: I happened at around the same time on another piece of research. It was actually, an article that was written in 1966. It was um, an American uh, psychologist, Mark Rosenzweig, and he was one of the first people really looking at. At uh, neuroplasticity at that time, and he was working with rats. And he put rats in, you know, a, an environment that was very enriched, so lots of toys to play with in their cage, and then another group of rats that were in a cage that didn't have much in it. And what he found was the rats that had the enriched environment learned better on maze tests, like a little rat IQ test. So they were more able to learn after all of the stimulating environment that they'd been in. And then he looked at their brains afterwards, and he found that the rats that were in the enriched environment had more neurotransmitters, um, enlarged capillaries, more glia cells, uh, more branching on the dendrites. So the brain had actually changed at a physiological level to support the learning, and they were better learners.
1: And as you're talking about this, I'm thinking... How long did it take you to read that enough times so you even understood it?
0: A lot of times. I mean, if you look at my books and articles at that time, they're they're underlined in maybe five or six different colored pens, and I I draw pictures beside them. So, But I was so determined. I mean, at this point, I was experiencing a lot of despair. I I, I was seriously contemplating ending my life because I just couldn't see a future for myself. But but here's
1: here's what's so mind-boggling, because... Depression can sap people's motivation. You seem to be losing hope, and yet you had this incredible drive, but you had no self-esteem. How do you bring out the drive and push through when you have no self-esteem and hardly any hope for the future?
0: It's a really interesting question. I think, I mean, again, part of my brain that was working well was the prefrontal cortex, which is that part that drives. And I think, you know, if I look at my family, my father had thirty patents. Um, you know, he he was an inventor. He was an inventor, and there was a belief that I grew up with in my family that if something didn't exist, that wasn't a barrier. You just went out and created it. So there was there was that kind of creative bent.
1: Did you believe that at the time?
0: Um, did I believe that at the time? I don't know that I actually really sat back and thought about it, but I had that drive. And I'd seen him you know, come home with his, his blueprints and his designs. I didn't understand anything he was doing, but I understood, I felt his excitement. Um, so there was... There was something there, some intangible level that was just pushing me, almost like I didn't have a a choice.
1: What was the first exercise you developed for your brain?
0: The first exercise was using clocks because uh, I had never been able to tell time. And if we think about time, it's, it's, it's relational. It's a relationship. You have to understand the hour and the minute to interpret the time.
1: And so what did you do?
0: Well... First, I had to get a friend to help me because I couldn't tell time, So I and I didn't wear a watch, um, so I had to get a watch, and he would, uh, you know, turn the hands to represent different times, so we'd say, 245, what does that look like? Um, because for me, 245, I mean, I could put the numbers anywhere, and it would mean the same thing. And then, eventually, I started drawing clocks, so I'd have a whole bunch of times, like 157, 745, and have a clock face and actually have to draw the hands but draw them relationally so if it's 7.45 the hour is going to be three quarters of the way through represented by the 45 minutes and that might not sound like much but that was huge for me because I never ever had made those connections uh, How many
1: hours of work did it take you to get to a point where you could actually tell the time?
0: Um, I probably worked 10, 11 hours a day because again I was desperate I don't recommend that for anybody and over I think it was a maybe a three-month span, and it was a kind of exhaustion that I have never felt since or afterwards. Like, it was a mental fatigue. I mean, I feel like I worked my brain until my brain fell down at night, and then the next day i get up and I would work it again.
1: Do you remember the moment when it started clicking?
0: Yes, I do. Um, I was watching 60 Minutes, and before... Whenever I watched it, I watched it again with a friend, and he would always have to interpret for me because I didn't understand. I mean, it's a documentary and it's relational, and people are talking about ideas and making connections. And all of a sudden, I started to understand it as I was listening to it, and it was profound. I almost fell off the couch. And my friend was turning to me to interpret something, and I turned to him and explained what I had just seen, and his mouth dropped open because that had been impossible for me. And it wasn't, I was so clear, it wasn't that somebody could have taught me this. I had to change my brain so my brain can process that information in real time.
1: And so, not to be sitting in the psychologist's seat, because I'm not, but, you know, we talked about no self-esteem. You're 26, 27, 28 at this Mm -hmm. point. The floodgates are opening up. And Do you see a transformation in your self-esteem almost instantly or not? Was there a lag there?
0: There was definitely a lag because I had lived a lot of years um, with a very specific reality that was very fragmented. Um, And what I found, even now that I could do things, when I would be in a situation that would present something that before I couldn't do but now I could my immediate reaction was fear because that had just been ingrained in me Um, it it was just instinctual right so I would kind of freeze and then think I can't do this and then I'd have to stop and say well yes you can do it now And, and I had to have a lot of those kind of experiences before that fear dropped away.
1: This is CNN Profiles. We're speaking with Barbara Arrowsmith, author of The Woman Who Changed Her Brain. The psychiatrist Norman Doidge, a leading thinker in the world of brain plasticity, the now accepted notion that we can rewire our brains, wrote this about our guest. He said, The scientists who make important discoveries about the brain are often those whose own brains are extraordinary, working on those whose brains are damaged. It is rare that the person who makes an important discovery is the one with the deficit. Barbara Arrowsmith was one of those rare people who had the deficit and discovered how to overcome it. And she didn't stop with herself, which is why we now have the Arrowsmith School in Toronto. Tell us about your school.
0: Well, in uh, 1980, a few years after I started developing these programs and seeing the results not only in myself, but starting to work with other students, I decided I needed to create a school. I mean, these students were coming to me after school. So they were struggling all day in school and then being exhausted. And then I was trying to address the cognitive pieces after school. So in 1980, I became a school where children could come and spend a large part of the day working on cognitive exercises. And we work on one period of mathematics and one period of of English. But the rest of the day, these children are doing things like you know, the clocks exercise, they're doing exercises to stimulate being able to read situations non-verbally, um, working on auditory memory, visual memory for symbol patterns, the child is dyslexic and, and can't read. But we're not teaching the content. Like What I believe this work is doing is is going below the content and really changing the brain capacity to learn so that then the learner can learn any content related to that. Because I don't want them to put sound to it. The whole idea of a cognitive exercise is you don't want them to compensate. You don't want them to be taking a strength to support a weakness. I want to go right into the weakness. So it's it's finding an activity, which is seeing relationships in clocks. And I have now up to a 10-handed clock, which only two people walking through my school ever have been able to look at it and interpret it. One was a physicist from Harvard, and one was an astronomer from Maryland who'd uh, discovered radio-emitting galaxies. Because, I mean, imagine, like, I want it, that's like supercharged reasoning ability. My goal is not just to bring the area to average. If some way I can bring it to above average, to give the person a strength in an area where there's a deficit.
1: So is this the same part of the brain that deals with my issue, which happens to be, I can't read maps, I can't navigate well, can you help me?
0: Yes, there but it's it's a different it's it's a different well, can exercise. Because if
1: you can help me with this, you can help my marriage. If my <laughs> wife were married to a
0: navigator,
1: oh, she would be in heaven. But you know what that does raise an issue because mm-hmm. as I'm reading your book, I'm thinking, you know, I want to come to your school for an assessment because we all have weak parts of our brain and now we know, which we didn't know 30, 40 years ago, that we can actually change things. Even though I'm 52, mm-hmm. I, can, I can make my brain better and more powerful, right?
0: Oh, absolutely. I've worked with people up until uh, age 74, and there's neuroplasticity across our lifespan, which is really exciting news.
1: And so here's another thing. You worked so hard. Now, clearly, this does not come quickly. You, there's no quick fix for the brain, right? There's no, no quick exercise to build that muscle.
0: I wish there was, and there isn't.
1: There isn't. Once you get to the point where you're at now and where many of us are at,
0: Is there that fear
1: that you could go back?
0: I've tracked people 30 years out of the program um, because I've been doing this for over 30 years, and there's no drop-off in function that I see. And I think it's because, I mean, even though we talk about the brain being like a muscle, right, it really isn't. I mean, we know if we stop exercising our muscles, they atrophy.
1: What patterns are you seeing on the kids who are coming to your school and the kids whose schools you're going to that might give you insights that apply to a wide range of kids developing on the normal range or handicapped by various learning disabilities? Are there certain patterns, especially in today's life, the way we're living that might help us?
0: Well, one thing I find quite interesting, when I started this work in the late 70s, and I was reading Laurie's work, and he was describing the prefrontal cortex, like that part of the brain that drives, the mental initiative, the part that, that thinks and problem solves. And I really wanted to see people walk through the door with that difficulty because it sounded fascinating and really saw nobody, maybe one or two students. Now I would say 50% of the students that walk through the door have difficulties in what's broadly called executive functioning. And I sort of wonder why is that? And I can't be certain, but one of the things I speculate about is, you know, have we developed a society where people are more passive, right? I mean, we, we put people in front of... TVs, not that there's anything wrong with the TV, but, but it's where the stimulation is passive. Like we're not in the, that, that part of the brain, the prefrontal cortex, needs to be engaged. It needs to be thinking, problem-solving, driving. So I'm wondering whether we're somehow doing a disservice. And, and um, you know, there are a lot of articles that have been written about like dumbing down our society, So I I wonder. I mean, what I can say practically is I'm seeing a lot more students with that difficulty. Now I can address that. We can change it. We can turn it around. Um, But somehow if we could find a way to create more stimulating activities for our children, I think that would be only a good thing.
1: And and define for us executive functioning. I've heard that term a lot.
0: it's, um, It's where, say we're given a problem to solve. And this is the part of the brain that fires up. And starts to think about, like, how am I going to go about solving that problem? Um, you know, am I going to go over here and try to gather this information? Am I going to go over here and ask this person something? It's, it's where um, it kind of like the engine that drives everything. It's what fires up to start uh, revving to gather the knowledge, the information to solve the problem. So it's 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 really our problem solver, which is really, really critical. And if somebody's weak there, they're passive, right? I mean, they can see all the things around them, they see the problems. But that engine doesn't fire up to start them trying to figure out how am I going to create a solution and, to this. And
1: and when did you start, you think, noticing in your experience a higher proportion of kids coming in with executive functioning problems?
0: I would say probably um, somewhere mid to late, late 80s.
1: So it's been evolving over the past few decades. Yes. Um, and what do you do to help these kids with their executive functioning schools? You know, a lot of kids are prescribed medicines to help them with executive functioning skills. Mm-hmm. Do they need them?
0: Well, it's possible. I can't say that all of them don't. A lot of the students that come through my door, I'd say, Maybe 60% are on medication. By the end of the program, maybe 5% are on medication.
1: Give me an example of a a type of kid who comes in on medicine in part because of the executive functioning dimension, Mm -hmm. and what do you do with that child that eventually leads to him or her getting off that medicine?
0: Well, so it's the program that, that stimulates the executive function of the prefrontal cortex. And I've created a whole number of different exercises, But but the basic premise is they're given material that they have to look at. And if somebody has a difficulty here, they'll pick one detail in that information and kind of go off on a tangent, right? They won't Act, like one of the problems is they don't actively survey. They don't look at all of the information um, and think about it before they start on a path to try to solve it. It's, it's like that Im- impulsivity, right, where they'll, you know, they'll see the word cat and they'll be running off thinking about cats, whereas, you know, it's maybe only one tiny piece in that information. So what I've done is created a series of exercises that is constantly pulling the student back into the material until they see all of the critical features, everything that's relevant um, in that, and then they have to come up with generating a solution or generating. Some, it doesn't have to be the ideal solution, but 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 it's making that part of the brain think and turn over and look at all the information before jumping to a conclusion
1: final thoughts. Tell us the name of your book and why we should read it. Seriously, why should we read
0: this book? Uh, It's The Woman Who Changed Her Brain. And I think, I mean, one of the big things that I wanted to accomplish in writing this book was to give more compassionate understanding um, for people that are struggling with cognitive deficits. I mean, there's still a lot of um, misunderstanding out there. Somehow, if the child's not doing well, they're just not trying hard enough. And I think... If we can look at ourselves and look at other people and realize they 're all trying as hard as they can, but there might be a part of the brain that just isn't working the way it should, and they're not doing this intentionally um, I think it it can really give us more compassion for ourselves and for others and then Ultimately, I would like to see this work in more schools so that, that you know children don't have to struggle and don't have to have the same experience that I had where, um, you know, really I was seriously contemplating ending my life.
1: And now you never contemplate that. No. Can you ever imagine contemplating it?
0: No, no, no. When,
1: when did you turn the corner on that? When did it become inconceivable to you that you would ever contemplate ending your life?
0: I would say after I got the breakthrough and could— Understand my world. I mean, and feel like I was a part of it, and and um, fit into it. And recently, I just found a, a journal that I'd written when I was 13 because I was going through materials when I was writing the book. And and this, I don't want for any child. But I, I took a vow at 13 and wrote it down that I had to close my heart off to myself, and that was the only way that I could get through. I had to become just not. Um, allow that pain of the struggle that I had um, in order to just soldier on and do what I needed to do to get through school. It was like I just, you know, shut all compassion down for myself.
1: And the compassion came back to life, though, or came to life for the first time at some point. Yes. Barbara Arrowsmith, author of The Woman Who Changed Her Brain, thank you for joining us on CNN Profiles.
0: Thank you. CNN. Radio. Mmm.